What do you do when you're fighting for survival and balancing grief on a societal level at the same time? This is a question many of us are facing now and asking ourselves in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic. One of the points of history we can turn to are stories from the 1918 flu pandemic. Dubbed the Spanish flu, the deadly pandemic killed at least 50 million people worldwide, including a half a million in the United States. These numbers can sound abstract or worse like cold statistics. It's hard to fathom such loss. We also know that the 1918 pandemic coincided with World War I and deeply impacted the military operations worldwide. More American troops died from the virus than in combat. But there are few monuments and memorials to victims of the pandemic in the United States. No statue, no historical marker even in Philadelphia, one of the hardest hit cities in the United States, where 20,000 people died of the flu. That includes my great-great-grandmother. Our guest on this episode, Nancy Hill, is one of the Philadelphia-based organizers of the Muter Museum's exhibition on the 1918 pandemic, Spit Spreads Death. She shares insights with us about how the pandemic is and is not remembered. People could either choose to celebrate the armistice or they could choose to grieve the flu dead and they chose to celebrate the armistice instead and try to move on with their lives because it was just too much. And hopefully, you know, we've gotten enough distance from this that we can start to commemorate those people because their families are still talking about them today. The experiences that they survived and that they remembered have shaped their family for generations, whether or not they, they knew it at the time. This episode, we speak to Hill about cultural memory and timely lessons from the 1918 pandemic. The parallels between then and now are astounding, informative, and troubling. She shares stories of vulnerable communities, immigrants, African-American migrants, who were hard hit by the virus and society's response. She also sheds light on the ways everyday residents stepped up to help one another to care and commemorate in urgent ways. She also helped me shed light on my great-great-grandmother's story, how she and her community may have experienced the 1918 pandemic. Hill closes our conversation with her hopes for greater understanding about viruses and the science behind them as ways we can cope and look ahead. I'm Paul Farber. This is Monument Lab. Welcome to Monument Lab, public art and history podcast. Each episode, we explore stories and critical conversations about the past, present, and future of monuments. We speak to the artists, activists, and historians on the front lines, building the next generation of public spaces through stories of social justice and equity. Here are the monumental people, places, and ideas of our time. Nancy Hill, welcome to the Monument Lab podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you for being here. To begin, you know, we're in the midst of the coronavirus pandemic and there's often reference to the 1918 flu pandemic. Uh, 
Um, for our listeners, could you give a kind of brief overview of what that pandemic was and and um, of the history that that would be helpful for us to know in the present? Sure. So in 1918, specifically in the fall of 1918, a pandemic swept the entire globe and hit some certain locations particularly hard. It was an influenza pandemic, specifically an H1N1 strain, similar to the swine flu of 2009. Uh, it's not known exactly where it originated, but it's kind of hypothesized that it either began at a military training camp in Kansas or potentially in China. However, this was kind of the first really global pandemic because this was going on at the same time as the First World War. And so it erupted at a time where unusually there was global travel in a large, large mass rather than, you know, kind of previously contained ocean liner travel that took weeks and weeks. So this pandemic ended up killing an estimated 20 to 50 million people worldwide. Uh, those numbers are kind of highly contested because of record keeping being not what it is today. Philadelphia was a particularly hard hit city with about 17 and a half thousand deaths documented from the six months starting in September of 1918 until February of 1919. And this really kind of had a major influence not only on the United States and Philadelphia, but also on the outcomes of the First World War, uh, potentially on uh, Indian independence in South Asia. And this was really a massive event that due to kind of shared collective trauma and political timing wasn't has not been talked about much. Yeah, I want to follow up there. And can you share a little bit more about how the flu pandemic may have shaped the World War I conflict and Indian independence in Southeast Asia? During World War I, more soldiers actually died from pandemic flu than actually were killed in combat. And this war was horrifying in an unprecedented way for the time and even for now. I mean, this was the debut of gas warfare. We're talking about trench warfare where infection uh, environments were very, the the environment was not healthy for soldiers. It was not healthy, you know, mentally or physically. So there were a lot of infections going around, gas warfare, all kind the kind of traditional traumatic injuries that you think about, as well as this viral pandemic that affected both sides of the conflict. However, neither side really published about it. it part of why we call this uh, colloquially the Spanish flu is uh, there were censors on both presses on both sides of the conflict. And neither side wanted to let the other know that they were compromised. And so you never saw a, you know, front page news about this pandemic, except in Spain, which is part of why it's known as the Spanish flu. And so because of the high number of fatalities of troops and, you know, ultimately political leaders as well, uh, you know, this was something that was kind of quietly and secretly ravaging both the military and, uh, you know, political figures. Um, and it is hypothesized, again, it's hard to point to this directly as a contributing factor, but, you know, Britain obviously was very involved in the military conflict and crippled by the uh, pandemic flu. And when you're trying to maintain control of a colonial territory and you've just dealt with a massive military conflict and you're also still dealing with this uh, pandemic at home that has cost a number of lives, it's depleted a lot of resources, it's going to become a lot harder to maintain control of that uh, colonial territory. And so it's it's hard to point to specifically the flu 
as the straw that broke the camel's back, but it certainly depleted resources, both uh, financially and personnel-wise, politically, to maintain control over a remote territory like that. Did that play out in other places of colonial occupation and rule? Um, It's hard to say specifically. I think India is the one that I have seen the most discussion about because, again, timing-wise, in the following decades, the flu pandemic kind of was happening right at the same time as these independence efforts on behalf of uh, Indian nationals. There's been a lot of kind of speculation about the role that the pandemic could have had in women's suffrage. Again, where a lot of things happened right after World War One, and it's hard to say uh, concretely what was because of the pandemic and what was because of the war. I mean, a lot of these events undoubtedly both contributed in their own right, but uh, when you think about women's suffrage and prohibition and, uh, you know, the kind of trauma that people were dealing with after this, I'm sure a num- there were a number of social woes that people were were seeing unfold in front of them and wanting to address due to that trauma. In 2020, we're watching a modern medical system stretch to its capacity, is brought to its knees. How did medical facilities fare in 1918. How did they handle the pandemic then? Well, I will say that medicine in 1918 was extremely different than it is now on a number of fronts. I mean, today we're obviously dealing with personnel shortages and equipment shortages, things like ventilators. In 1918, there was no ventilator. There was uh, no antibiotic to fight secondary infections. So for the, the flu is a viral infection, but it does open you up to things like pneumonia, which is a bacterial infection. So in 1918, the really only the only options were to kind of monitor fever and try to mean, manage those symptoms as best you could. However, the, again, here's where World War One becomes a big kicker, especially in Philadelphia. We were missing a lot of our medical force domestically because they were away with the military. And so when this uh, pandemic came to Philly, there was a shortage of medical professionals. At Pennsylvania Hospital, only had about 25 percent staff. Other places had, you know, closer to 75%, but still it's kind of, you know, you're fighting this fight with one arm tied behind your back. Your project, Spit Spreads Death, is focused on Philadelphia. Um, What about the city is important to understand the 1918 pandemic? Well, I think it's important to, A, highlight Philadelphia is one of the worst hit major cities in the United States. This is kind of contested between Philly and Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh had a higher number of deaths per capita, but their population was quite quite a lot smaller. And so it's kind of an, you know, a statistic interpretation issue. But Philadelphia at the time was really kind of this industrial powerhouse. Um, and you had Center City still ha- had a lot of these beautiful hotels, a lot of some, which are still there today. A lot of those buildings are still there today. You know, running water, streetlights, all, all of that. But South Philadelphia and other residential neighborhoods in the city didn't even, you know, homes didn't have running water yet. And so there was a massive disparity of kind of access to technology and access to resources in the community. And so Philadelphia kind of has a good cross-section of being an urban environment, having a lot of different types of people present, having a lot of different types of resources distributed in a way that may or may not make sense. And I think the pandemic kind of shed light on that in a lot of ways. 
And then it also just sort of, uh, again, it, it signified and represented a lot of the things that the United States was proud of at that time. You know, all of these huge factories, shipping ports, lots of employment opportunity in the area. And, you know, very much was brought to its knees by this. The COVID-19 pandemic has turned many of us into armchair epidemiologists. We're reading news reports as they come, the announcements from a variety of federal and state levels trying to make sense of how best to protect ourselves and our communities. Spit spreads death was a rallying cry in 1918. Who coined it and how did it circulate in the public health realm? So the name Spit Spreads Death actually comes from the public health campaign uh, to prevent the spread of influenza in 1918. And so we got the name of the exhibit in particular from an image of a poster. There were, again, these posters all over the city Posters were very much a thing in 1918, uh, you know, with the war going on, a lot of political propaganda, things like that. And so our historical curators and the artists at Blast Theory that we were working with were struck by a particular image that we found of um, a Fourth Liberty Bond uh, campaign sign. It's a wood sign on a lamppost and slapped up over that is a paper sign that says spit spreads death. And that was the public health messaging at the time to try and slow the spread of uh, pandemic influenza. Uh, so we we got that name directly from the public health messaging at the time. Other signs that you would have seen relating to the flu in 1918 and public health were uh, spit spreads death, stop the spitter. Uh, there were signs on trolleys saying, hey, Mr. Spitter, again, keep in mind, chewing tobacco is a much more popular thing in the North than it is today. The understanding at the time was that flu is being spread by people spitting on the ground and not drying into dust and being tracked into homes and things like that. Not the most accurate understanding of how influenza was spread. Again, spitting on the ground. A lot of this is also a hangover from uh, a previous epidemic of tuberculosis. And you'll see that some small towns in the country still have laws against public spitting, either because of tuberculosis rules or because of pandemic flu rules. I wanted to ask you how effective that 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 message was and and just to get your sense on you know what kind of information or misinformation was being circulated at the time and kind of where could you turn for information that was trustworthy at what point did that emerge in that pandemic well 1918 was difficult because in a lot of ways, the science technology was right on the cusp of being able to address this, but not quite there yet. And so in 1918, there wasn't really a strong enough microscope for people to distinguish between a virus and a bacteria. And so they knew that this illness was spreading. They had some idea of how it spread in terms of person-to-person contact, saliva, Really, it's kind of has more to do with kind of mucus molecules that are mixing with your saliva. But again, they had a vague understanding, however, not quite enough of an understanding to really be able to do much about it. And so the efforts in earnest for a vaccine began in 1918. However, there wasn't a flu vaccine available to the public until 1945. And that, again, had a lot to do with the distinction between a virus and a bacteria. And there were 
lots of efforts, a lot of failed vaccines in 1918. Initially, the inoculations were developed around a bacterial infection that was not actually the cause of it. So in 1918, there wasn't really all that much you could do, and there wasn't a ton of great, I, I would say, scientific information. There was a public health commissioner in the city. His name was Larry Crunson, and he was a gynecologist by trade. And I, I hesitate to say that he was not qualified because he certainly was a medical professional. But I think kind of the biggest whoopsie in the pandemic response in 1918 was the Fourth Liberty Loan Parade, which was held on September 28th, despite public health officials urging the city to cancel it. I think that will sound familiar to a lot of listeners who might be keeping an eye on the news, you know, relating to Lunar New Year parades in East Asia and St. Patrick's Day parades on the East Coast of the United States that were canceled because of COVID. But um, in 1918, the two worst things that you could be were a hoarder and a slacker, a hoarder being someone who hoards resources, rationed materials for the war effort, a slacker being someone who didn't buy their limit of war bonds. And so the public perception was very much that the Kaiser was a bigger threat than the flu. Crenson uh, and the city department of health thought that they could contain the spread of flu in Philadelphia. And they went ahead and had this parade. 200,000 people showed up on South Broad Street. And within 72 hours of, of that event, all 32 hospitals in the city at the time were full. I'm not sure if that answered your question. <laughs> yeah, no, that's a, that's a, no, I, I really appreciate that. How how fast did people realize that holding that public event was um, a grave error? Probably a lot of uh, medical professionals and public health professionals realized within that 72-hour window. I would say the general public about two weeks. Um, much in the same way that COVID takes time and it has an incubation period to kind of be aware that you have it. I mean, the flu sometimes killed extremely fast. You would wake up in the morning with a sniffle and be dead that evening. We've heard from different family stories and things like that. But um, again, it's hard to think about and recognize a collective experience until you know somebody who's been affected by that. You know, I think that this really started when it first entered the city, it was entering the Navy Yard, and it was affecting people who worked down in the Navy Yard, which at the time was not a residential area. Again, Philadelphia in 1918 had about 1.7 million residents with an extra about quarter million people here just to work in war industry factories. That is pretty similar to what the population is today, but with a very different density. A lot of, a lot of South Philadelphia, again, down by the Navy Yard and also West Philadelphia was very much suburban and there was just nothing down by the Navy Yard. So Initially, I think the general public probably didn't know it was happening. And by kind of second week of October, you couldn't ignore it. You wouldn't have been able to ignore it because you would have been seeing your neighbors, your relatives, your friends dying. And a lot of unpleasant occurrences relating to a burial crisis that resulted. In the lead up to our conversation, you um, helped solve a family history question for me, my great grandmother died in Philadelphia, in South Philadelphia, in the 1918 flu pandemic. And because of your research, we were able to glimpse into that history. I'm curious if you're able to share what life would have been like for her and my grandfather who lived in the house with 
his grandmother who who died in this pandemic. My great-great-grandmother was uh, an Eastern European Jewish woman who immigrated to Philadelphia. They lived in South Philadelphia, just a few blocks away from the Delaware River and the Coast Guard Station. And uh, I've never gotten a chance to ask someone, are you able to share about how that family or others like them may have seen this pandemic? For sure. Um, A couple things that are important to note about the pandemic specifically in Philadelphia is that uh, disproportionately recent immigrants were affected by this. So I'm talking kind of uh, first generation born in the United States, people who came directly and were not born in the United States, and families that very much were were new to the area. Um, And that in Philadelphia meant overwhelmingly Irish, Italian, and Eastern European folks. And again, Philadelphia had this really glitzy center city area that I think we're all familiar with. But then South Philadelphia, Kensington, Northeast Range, and then Cecil B. Moore Brewery Town were the four areas that we looked at in the most detail for this exhibit because those were the neighborhoods that we saw the most, the highest number of deaths in in our initial data. And again, we audited all of the death certificates in Philadelphia County from the 1st of September of 1918 through the end of February of 1919, which is how we were able to find your great-great-grandmother. So for your great-great-grandmother specifically, uh, her death certificate tells me that she was born in Russia. So she would have fallen in that category of people who were fairly new to the country and, you know, set up in South Philadelphia and, uh, most likely were doing some kind of industrial work or labor work, the men in the family were at least. And so again, South Philadelphia at this time, when we think about the row homes, again, a lot of these row homes are the same age, you know, uh, your deed will say 1925, but that's often because the city doesn't have an exact construction date. So a lot of the row homes that you see today are the same row homes that we're talking about in 1918. And today you have maybe three people living in one of these row homes. In 1918, think three families. So this was a very, very close quarters living situation. Individual homes uh, were very lucky if they had running water. Most likely they didn't have running water. And there would have been an outhouse shared between the entire block. And so sanitation very much was a challenge. Um, Specifically for, again, I'm looking at your your great-great-grandmother's uh, death certificate right now. She's listed as being uh, a houseworker. So she stayed at home. She most likely would have been seeing the neighbors around her getting sick. Perhaps she would have been trying to help care for them or care for her family, which is something that we hear a lot. Again, South Philadelphia, it's a tight, tight, cramped space, but it also had a pretty good community. Again, a lot of these people came from the same places and were going through similar experiences and trying to help take care of each other. I don't want to anonymize your great-great-grandmother by any means, but her story is one that we see over and over again. A recent immigrant to the area. She's in this demographic that we kind of expect to see. She's a little bit older. She's a mother of many kids. And unfortunately, you know, she passed away on the 16th of October which is right in that spot of kind of the second week of October when we see the massive spike of flu dead in Philadelphia. Thank you for that. Part of what you're describing is the ways that people coped on an everyday level and house by house, block by block. 
What stories have you found about the ways that everyday residents cared for each other um, in the city? Uh, well, we've got we've been lucky enough to get a lot of family stories uh, from people who were, you know, their family was in Philadelphia at the time. We've also gotten some stories from outside of Philadelphia, which has been great. If any of your listeners have a family story, they can actually email it to me at influenza1918 at collegeofphysicians.org and add that. We're hoping to put together kind of a digital scrapbook of all of these family stories. So as much or as little information as you have. Uh, and we think that's important because, again, we at the time, the historical record was competing against the First World War, which was the biggest thing that had happened to anybody, really. And so these little snippets of civilian life of the average person's experience, I'm sure they seemed mundane at the time, but today they're priceless. So to answer your question, we see a lot of volunteerism that went around at this time. I think that people were kind of seeing so much of this kind of political messaging, you know, do your part, support the effort, sort of, you know, rah-rah stuff, which to be to its credit, I think people were 100% prepared to step up to the plate for the most part when they were needed. And so city, city infrastructure very much failed uh, pretty quickly during this pandemic. And I've been getting a lot of family stories about, you know, one person's grandmother who she lived near a cemetery where there were workers working day and night to dig holes to try and deal with the volume of dead. And so she would make a big pot of soup and go out to the cemetery and feed the workers as many as she could. There's another person's grandfather who worked at a dynamite factory. He dealt, he delivered dynamite, basically. And there was a shortage of coffins in the city. And so he started bringing home empty dynamite crates to give to his neighbors as coffins for their children. And we see all sorts of things like that. Seminary students, when this when school classes were canceled, the seminary students were paired off and either sent with a horse and cart to go to different neighborhoods and pick up the dead, or they were sent to the Catholic cemeteries to work as grave diggers. And there were ultimately three temporary mass graves in Philadelphia to deal with this burial crisis. And so it very much came down to caring for your neighbors, caring for children. Again, that was another thing we see neighbors with children, if the parents were sick, the, na- the neighbors would try to take care of the kids for them so that they could rest, things like that. Uh, very much a community-based effort to resolve these issues. And you talking about a city that is undergoing a, a, a serious loss of life and the need for immediate solutions um, to burial. How did mourning change or have to change during the 1918 pandemic? Well, it's a little bit of a difficult question because we don't have a ton of documentation, but I will say when a lot of people think about history, they think about the Victorian era and there was obviously a whole song and dance kind of um, uh, etiquette to mourning in the Victorian era. We're, We're right after that. And I think there's still a lot of those kind of cultural uh, practices in place. But this is also something that differs majorly between now and 1918 is that you had a home wake and you cared for your own dead for the most part. Yes, you would have a funeral director come. Uh, there was embalming that might be done depending on your religious affiliation, but there might not be. Again, there wasn't really the kind of refrigeration that we have available 
but really, a lot of people cared for their own deads and had home wakes. In 1918, the only sort of specific uh, mourning practice that I've seen that has come out of the flu uh, was the draping of white crepe fabric outside a house where a child had died of the flu. Other than that, it's a lot of kind of similar home funerals, home wakes, but I have seen some family stories where people, again, were aware of this infection spreading. And one one story in particular, a pregnant woman didn't come to her mother-in-law's funeral because she was pregnant and particularly vulnerable to the flu. And some members of her family never forgave her for not coming to that funeral. But when the when the family member who emailed me this story said, you know, told me that, I was kind of like, well, it's, it's a very good thing that she didn't go to that funeral, you know. But um, I think today we're seeing a lot of these live streamed funerals and only 10 people can be physically present and things like that. I think we probably would have seen to, in 1918 to some extent those funerals, sh- home funerals shrinking in size, either due to people not wanting to come out for fear of catching the virus or for being sick themselves. You have been quoted as saying that um, there's a very local relationship to this flu pandemic. Um, But in Philadelphia, there are no monuments or memorials to those who died. Can you elaborate on that and kind of how you've wrapped your own head around how you've thought for yourself about that fact? Yeah, I think the thing that, again, hearing these family stories, the, the thing that I hear the most is really the trauma from seeing the dead piling up in the streets. This very much became like almost a medieval Europe plague where people were having to put their dead out on their stoops, on their porches, in their yards. And that was extremely traumatic for the general public, as as you can imagine. Other cities do have some kind of memorial uh, for the lives lost during pandemic flu. In Philadelphia, we do not. And again, this is 17,500 Philadelphians in in just six months. 14,000 of those was just in six weeks. And so this happened very quickly. And Again, hearing from these families, something that we we get a lot is is they thank us for talking about this because they didn't know that this was a collective experience because the families, this happened, and then they ne- they maybe told the story once or twice and they never spoke about it again. And again, to kind of dovetail this in with the overlapping theme of World War One, you've got this demographic of young men who, if they're coming home from war, are coming home so traumatized by what they've seen, it has shaken, it was harrowing for them. And they're coming home to their families, to a general public who's just been through this harrowing experience of their own as well, especially in urban centers. And so it seems to us at the Mütter Museum that people could either choose to celebrate the armistice or they could choose to grieve the flu dead and they chose to celebrate the armistice instead and try to move on with their lives because it was just too much. And hopefully, you know, we've gotten enough distance from this that we can start to commemorate those people because their families are still talking about them today. The experiences that they survived and that they remembered have shaped their family for generations, whether or not they, they knew it at the time. And, you know, the efforts that people put forth to try to help their families, their communities are, are kind of worth beholding and putting on a somewhat literal pedestal if we can. And so, you know, we're hoping at the, with the museum exhibit that for now this will function as a memorial for those individuals, but we would like to ultimately get um, 
you know, those blue and yellow historical plaque markers in, in Philadelphia. We're hoping to get at least one of those uh, up. There was a volunteer phone line set up at the Strawbridge's clothing store, which is now the Macy's uh, at Ethan Market. And basically a, a coalition, kind of a citizen's coalition that was meant to oversee and maintain uh, labor conditions and fair pay in the uh, military industry factories. They realized, hey, we're not really doing anything with these war industry factories, but here's this whole other crisis that's unfolding. And so they pivoted their attention and set up a phone line at Strawbridge's. They took over one of the phone lines there. Strawbridge's let them do it, to be fair. But uh, so you could call Strawbridge's and say flu, you would be transferred to this phone line where someone would say, hey, what do you need? And they say, we need doctors in Kensington. They would send somebody out to evaluate what was going on and say, okay, they need nurses. They need food. Somebody needs to come pick up these bodies. And they would try to bring those resources to wherever they were needed. And so in a perfect world, we would love to get a marker put up, hopefully there, maybe somewhere else, to kind of commemorate these pretty remarkable civilian efforts and experiences. You know, you mentioned that there are other cities that have kind of officially remembered um, the 1918 pandemic. I'm just curious if what examples you may share, and also if you find anywhere that the World War One memorials make any reference, even if it's passing reference, to the pandemic. If um, there are veterans, for example, who served overseas but ultimately passed away because of the pandemic. Sure. Um, I believe, I'm not 100% certain off the top of my head, but I believe both St. Louis and Pittsburgh do have some kind of public monument to the flu pandemic. Um, Some of these monuments will be just in a cemetery where there might have been a mass burial or something like that. They might not be official public monuments. I've definitely gotten a family story about... um, There is a VFW lodge in Delaware named after this soldier who died of the flu uh, before he managed to go to combat. And again, very common story, this, the flu is being spread like wildfire in a lot of these military training camps. And so there are a lot of these soldiers that didn't even make it to Europe to fight. They died of the flu. I would imagine they are represented in a lot of those World War I memorials. Uh, it's interesting, at the College of Physicians building, we actually have plaques up, and this makes a little bit more sense for us because we're obviously speaking to medical personnel, but it uh, commemorates fellows of the college who died either in war or during pestilence. And so it kind of, this plaque, it's it's funny because the way the building's laid out now, it's not really in a publicly available area, but it commemorates members of the college and the fellowship of the college who died either from from military service or in service at a time of pestilence, which, you know, the, the medical uh, authority seems to recognize as one and the same at the time that that plaque was put up. Other than that, again, I think there's probably mention of, of the flu on World War I monuments, but overwhelmingly you're going to see sculptures of, of soldiers with, you know, helmets and bayonets, and you're not going to see a Red Cross nurse. You're not going to see the average person, you know, an Eastern European immigrant or anything like that specifically represented. And maybe to that point, I heard a talk by um, our colleague Tiffany Tavares, and and she said that the 
the pandemic that we're facing today is not the great equalizer, it's the great magnifier. And she was speaking specifically about social inequity um, as something that you see profoundly through the stories of who is suffering and, and where are hotspots. You've mentioned recent immigrant groups, but how did people understand social class or social inequity um, or stories of, of race and racism through the 1918 pandemic? Yeah, uh, this is kind of a spicy time for to be an immigrant or to be a person of color in Philadelphia. So we talked about the immigrant community, but the other thing that was going on at this time is we're kind of right on the coattails of African-American mass migration out of the South. And so something that we see in different historical documents, and this is something that has been around as long as medicine has been around, but there was the incorrect assumption that African-Americans were immune to the flu. This was not true. The Philadelphia Tribune, an African-American newspaper from the time, has a number of obituaries, but there's always kind of been this perception by a predominantly white medical force that there's going to be some kind of physical difference in how these illnesses impact uh, Caucasian people versus people of color. That's not true at all. Uh, It's very well documented that this isn't true. But that misinformation is something that we still fight against. You know, I think there's a, a very loud racial undertone to a lot of the press coverage of COVID-19 because it's something that came out of East Asia. I think, you know, there was very much this kind of like pushing into the background of the African-American experience. And we haven't, I've read one really great essay by a gentleman named James Johnson about a prominent African-American family in Philadelphia at the time. But other than that, it's been pretty difficult to find, you know, historical record of the African-American experience at this time thing that we have seen a lot of documentation of is a place of burial noted. On some of these death certificates, as we were auditing them, a place of burial was noted as anatomical specimen. We see a disproportionate number of people of color who were noted as anatomical specimens versus uh, white people. We did have white people as well, but our speculative reason for this is that, you know, a lot of these people were new to Philadelphia from the South. They were coming from Georgia, coming from these Southern states, and they didn't have family to claim their body. And maybe they didn't have money for a burial anyway. And so, uh, you know, here's a cadaver that no one's going to miss if it goes missing. So what happens to it? It goes to a medical school for cadaver study by overwhelmingly white medical students. I think it's important to acknowledge the misgivings of medicine and the kind of exploitive nature uh, Medicine is great and has done a lot of public service to us today, but we also need to recognize that medicine is inherently a product of the culture in which it it exists, and we still something we're dealing with today. You know, so it wasn't just about that immigrant experience. And again, Philadelphians, Pennsylvanians who were white, who had been here for multiple generations, were also impacted by this. But overwhelmingly, those families had a lot more um, resource access and a lot more facilities to uh, avoid the flu. Maybe they had a property outside of the city they could go to. Maybe they had a family doctor who would prioritize them. Maybe, you know, even just being able to speak the same language as a qualified doctor would have been an, a barrier for a lot of these immigrant families. It's, it's something that when we were working on this project, we wanted to make sure that we talked about a lot of the parallels that we see today, not just the kind of 
you know, wonderful, heroic efforts of citizens to address something, but also, you know, immigrants still have a, a difficult time accessing healthcare for a number of reasons in this, in, in 2020. And a lot of those immigrants are living in the same neighborhoods that were immigrant neighborhoods in 1918. You know, maybe instead of coming from Eastern Europe, they're coming from Southern Asian countries. Maybe flu isn't the biggest issue of public health in their communities. Maybe it's the opioid epidemic. And again, we kind of feel like this has become, we warned you, the exhibit, because so many things that we talked about over the summer, we had a public health fair uh, at Mifflin Square Park in Southeast Philadelphia, not too far from where your great-great-grandmother is having listed as lived. And the flu isn't going to be the number one public health concern in that community. And we, we kind of felt it would be negligent for us to talk about public health and not also offer the resources that seem more pertinent. And, you know, I'm glad we did that. And those resources are certainly still needed, but now they're also compounding what is also a viral pandemic. So in retrospect, when you look at over the last even several years, whether it's a cover of Time magazine warning of a pandemic coming in 2017 or, you know, any number of public officials being quoted on the record that um, there needed to be preparation. Um, This is, uh, even if we didn't know what COVID-19 would be, um, there was a sense that this was coming. Spit Spreads Death opened in 2019. Can you take us back to understanding, you know, now it would seem obvious to do it, but for the um, Muter Museum, why did you pursue this project and exhibition in the first place? So the space that the exhibit currently occupies had previously been a Civil War exhibit. And so when the time came to start looking at grant funding and things like that uh, for what was going to come next, a lot of people said, oh, well, World War I, obviously. And as a as a health and medicine museum, we didn't want to have a, you know, quote unquote, war gallery. I think a lot of war injuries, especially uh, kind of antique war industries, are going to be pretty repetitive, a lot of traumatic injury, a lot of infection. Again, there's variation to that, but we didn't kind of want to have a centralized war gallery. And uh, the flu pandemic was something that was kind of uh, concurrent to the First World War, but not focusing on the injuries of war specifically. And so the, the topic was kind of chosen due to kind of a chronological interest, but also because of the local interest, and because we knew that at any point there would be some kind of public health concern in the news. We were sort of thinking it would be something like Ebola or antibiotic-resistant syphilis in Philadelphia or the opioid epidemic. But we knew at any point there's going to be a public health conversation happening in the news that uh, hopefully visitors can connect this exhibit to and help contextualize for them. Again, we sort of, I think a lot of us at the museum kind of feel like harbingers of doom because we were kind of, you know, in the background screaming about this for months and months and months. And then, you know, we opened it and then six months later it happened. So, uh, you know, it's, it's definitely surreal for us. We knew that there, you know, the WHO has been saying we're due for another pandemic. We're due for another flu pandemic specifically for a few years now. But we didn't really think the timing would be quite so serendipitous. In the months that the exhibition was open, what did you learn that was useful 
for you as as you face the coronavirus pandemic? Well, I think the, the, the something that has been a positive that we learned, we did put response cards in the exhibit. And so there's kind of a little desk towards the end of the experience with a couple of prompts about past, present, and future. Do you get a flu vaccine every year? Why or why not? Things like that. And so it's been interesting to see the responses on those for sure in that we, we definitely have gotten some vaccine skeptics in the museum. Obviously, we're dealing with a kind of self-selecting audience, but there's people who come to the museum who are vaccine skeptics. And, uh, you know, hopefully they found some information from a source they can trust in both the exhibit and also the College of Physicians has a history of vaccines website. Um, I think it's been interesting to, for me to see the kind of proportion of vaccine skeptics versus uh, you know, people who trust that and accept vaccine science. And it's also been interesting to see how those two different parties engage with each other. Um, I think the biggest thing for me that I've learned from the experience of having the exhibit open has to do more with uh, science literacy in that a lot of people you know, not not through any fault of their own, but maybe don't know really what a virus is or what it does. And so having a lot of these conversations, if I was leading a tour through the exhibit, for example, and this is people of all ages, having to explain that, you know, a virus is in a lot of ways a living creature and that this is something that can evolve and it has a will to live in a way that maybe we haven't thought about. I think a lot of people think of viruses kind of as you know, like a, a computer virus, which is partially accurate as well. But to say, hey, you know, the reason that you have to get a flu shot every year is that the flu is always changing and always evolving. Think Darwin's theory of evolution, but instead of millennia for a change to occur, it's months. And that has very much come up. And as I've been watching the news coverage of COVID, um, the fundamental misunderstanding of what a virus is and what it does to your body is something that hope, I hope can be addressed for people of all ages in you know, future education programming. And as we kind of reevaluate and open back up to the world, hopefully it'll be more central to the science conversation in, you know, at an elementary level. I just have one more question for you. Um, you know, and it has to do with this lessons learned or, you know, the perspective that, that, that you have, um, you know, on our Monument Lab Bulletin, we've been talking to artists and curators and asking them about how they anticipate changes, shifts to public space. And so, you know, with your perspective and hindsight and now in, in process, how do you see the next several months or even year unfolding and, and how will public space change or not change? for us if you use the lessons from history in 1918? Well, something I kind of want to preface is that we've thought about this specifically in the very beginning of the exhibit, kind of the thresholding experience, we pose a couple of questions to people. Uh, the, the, the one that I think is most important in this context is, you know, what do people feel and fear and what do you do? He's sort of asking people to think about what is your responsibility as a member of society during experiences like this. You know, I, I think culturally now we are much more accustomed to thinking about ourselves and our kind of, you know, micro environment of people. But when it's when you're dealing with something like a viral pandemic, 
it's it you can't think about it that way. It very much has to be a collective rationale and a collective effort. I'm hoping that after this, that is a little bit more in the front of people's minds, especially when it comes to things like vaccine compliance, because again, we can develop a vaccine for COVID-19, and I'm sure that we will, hopefully soon. But that vaccine is not going to be helpful, and it's not going to do the things that it needs to do if people don't trust it enough to get it, and if people don't have access to it. And so I think those are kind of the, the compliance with public health and the trust in science, as well as uh, the accessibility issues that are glaringly obvious today, hopefully are something that people start talking about and working to address more. Because again, I think it's really easy, you know, a few months ago, at least it was very easy to say, my, my neighbor doesn't have health insurance. That's not my problem. They can't go to the hospital. That's not for me to worry about. Whereas today, your neighbor not being able to get care that they need is very much your problem because they are a vehicle in the same way that you are. My biggest hopes for uh, kind of difference in social etiquette will be, again, just awareness of yourself as part of a collective whole and your role as that as part of that collective whole, your responsibility to the people around you and whatever your env- environment you're in, be that the grocery store, at the movie theater, your personal household. And uh, kind of a a loss of hierarchy in that, I think, will be important. Nancy Hill, thank you so much for joining the podcast and sharing your timely insights. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. You can learn more about the 1918 flu pandemic and the exhibition Spit Spreads Death at the Mütter Museum's website. That's müttermuseum.org. Next episode, we'll speak with LaTanya S. Autry and Mike Mirowski, co-founders of the Museums Are Not Neutral movement. Monument Lab is produced by Monument Lab Studio, Justin Geller and Paul Farber. Extra assistance comes from studio manager Yannick Trapman O'Brien, designer William Hodgson, and communications director Patricia Kim. All music you hear on the Monument Lab podcast is by Mokita. The Monument Lab podcast is supported by the Cerdna Foundation. To find out more about Monument Lab, visit us at monumentlab.com or find us online at monument underscore lab. You can find Monument Lab anywhere you get podcasts, Apple, Spotify, Google Play. You can also read a full transcript of each episode on our website. If you like what you hear, subscribe and leave a rating. Your feedback really helps.